0: This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our real-time history videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series, 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45, on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash real-time history podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show.
1: hello everyone this is flo and this is jesse welcome to another episode of the great war channel podcast today featuring a person a historic person that if i may say so the great war channel had a good deal uh, a good portion in popularizing in the early 21st century. Yes, the cult
0: figure of uh, Franz Konrad von Hützendorf, the chief of the general staff of Austria-Hungary, who is now somehow uh, thanks, I guess, to well, the Great War Channel, as you said, but also perhaps uh, some other internet pop culture phenomena has uh, had a resurgence of popularity, so we thought we'd investigate and I Remember having attended a book fair years ago where a German language biography of him was published so I figured that Is the author who can tell us a bit more uh, and sort out the myths and the legends
1: from the real man himself? Yeah, because I mean, you know, he's famous internationally now in terms of like uh, Let's say more famous or well more well recognized internationally now But, of course, in Austria, he has never really been forgotten in a classical sense because they have streets named after them, which is the origin story, how the author uh, we're going to interview uh, became interested in. Uh, And, uh, yeah, we will also talk a bit about how Konrad von Hötzendorf was remembered after the First World War, actually.
0: Exactly. As they say, old soldiers never die. They just fade away and apparently uh, Hutzendorf hasn't been so good at fading recently so he's still a hot topic and um, he's still a character who draws a lot of debate as to his skills at his job, as to his personality, as to his role in the conflict breaking out so we tried to get some
1: insights from Dr. Dornick about all those topics. Exactly. And without further ado, here is the interview. Enjoy.
0: So I'm very happy to welcome today a guest from my neck of the woods. And this does not happen very often here on the podcast. But we have with us today Dr. Wolfram Dornick, who's an Austrian historian and who is also the head of the city archives of the city of Graz in Austria, in Steiermark. And uh, for our purposes today, in particular, he's the author of a book called *Des Kaiser's Falke*, which roughly translates as "On the Emperor's Hawk," and it is a biography of one of the most popular characters on the Great War Channel from its uh, from the pre-armistice years, the chief of staff in Austria-Hungary. Franz Konrad von Hötzendorf. So thank you very much, Dr. Dornick, for joining us today. I've been looking forward to meeting you since I saw you speak about this book back in 2014.
2: Where did you uh, heard me? In Was it in St. Pölten?
0: Grace? No, actually, I uh, when the book came out, it was presented at the book fair, the Buchmesse mm-hmm. in Vienna. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I first uh, got excited about the book then. It was on my list for a long, long time, but I finally got my hands on it. And so I'm, I'm happy to uh, to be sitting here with you today and that you accepted our invitation.
2: Thank you for your invitation. It's a, it's a great pleasure for me to be here.
0: All right. So let us dive in. Um, you know, Konrad von Hötzendorf is not like a secret or forgotten figure of the war. He's fairly well known. He's had a resurgence of interest on in internet culture, actually. I hope partially as a result of, of our channel in previous years. What made you decide, you know what, I'm going to write a biography of this character? Because there have been other biographies written before. So what could you do? that brought something new uh, to the story of Konrad. What motivated you to say, I'm going to dive into this?
2: Uh, It's a long, long history of unquestioned answers. Um, And we have to go back to the middle of the 1990s when I was uh, going to school in Feldbach in Eastern Styria. And on my way to school, I crossed the place, which was called Konrad von Hötzendorfplatz. And I all the time was thinking, um, who was this guy? And why is a place here in Feldbach, in a a very small town in eastern Syria, called after him? And okay, I I read the Todesdoppleradlas and books like that, um, which gave me a a certain clue of the idea why they named the place here in Feldbach uh, after him. But I wasn't satisfied and later when I started uh, my studies here at the University of Graz um, I crossed the street, the Konrad von Hütznerstrasse once more, uh, a street named after uh, this general and all what I got to read in German I wasn't really satisfied um, with the answers they gave me. Later I read Uh, Lawrence Sontag's book, um, and I was a little bit more satisfied, but uh, the answer on the question why the streets and place names are on Conrad, uh, I missed also in this book. Uh, And so I deepened my research. Uh, I also missed a couple of que- uh, questions to be raised by the authors I so far read. And after a discussion with the publisher, the publisher of Student uh, Studienverlag, um, we decided to, that um, I should make a book uh, on Konrad von Hetzendorf um, and, and go into all these questions uh, which I raised for me personally, because he thought uh, this also may be interesting um, for, for a broader audience. Um, I didn't want to have a look on Conrad uh, from a strict military perspective. I thought these perspectives are very good um, uh, discussed in the, in the, in the literature uh, of the last, let's say, close to 100 years. Um, I was more interested how um, um, a man from a not very famous or rich family, um, a small officer's family um, close to Vienna, today Vienna, um, became one of the most infra- influential um, officers, generals of the Habsburg uh, monarchy. He was not part of the elite uh, but he became part uh, of uh, the, the the guys uh, the let's say 20 30 or 50 guys who decided for the war in 1914 and I wanted to 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 have a closer picture uh, on how he was raised uh, how was the social situation for him during his education uh, how was the family um, also, how was his, um, his, his whole private life uh, and also the private life influencing his job and also the history after 1918 was also one of my main focuses.
0: So a little inspiration on your uh, school commutes Uh, note to any of our high school listeners out there, you might stumble across a future career opportunity. Um, So let's talk a bit about sources before we get into the uh, answers uh, to some of these questions. What types of sources did you then try to use to answer the book? And if I recall correctly now, some of the sources you used were Fragments of his own writing, and what sort of challenges? How do you kind of sift through his own filter to then come out with a useful uh, answer to a question? After that,
2: that was uh, the the very the, a very difficult part on the on the whole uh, story uh, because when I read Osman Ladin's his autobiography, five volumes, very very thick volumes. I was very unsatisfied because even as a young historian, you see, okay, this is the point of view the guy wanted to um, transmit on the future. Uh, this is what he wanted uh, the people uh, to see him. And I was interested in, in sources which show us his development over the time, um, maybe also which give us an insight into his um, his thoughts in, at, at the start, But the tr- problem is the, the estate in the Austrian State Archives is, is very, very huge. Uh, I think 180 cartoons, uh, which is very, very much. Um, but there is no diary in it. You find some notes. Uh, You find a lot of notes which he made uh, to write his Aus meiner Dienstzeit. You find a lot of um, 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 maps he draw. You find a lot of pictures. And what you find is what his second wife, what Gina, um, put together. Uh, And uh, we know that she gave it to the Austrian State Archives, the War Archives. Uh, um, and she also wanted to draw this picture uh, of of her man. So it was very difficult to get an insight into uh, his, his uh, ideas uh, in the time. Uh, but I wanted to deconstruct the pictures he wanted to give to us uh, uh, by consulting also the sources from the general staff um, there are a lot of telegrams uh, where he mentioned his point of view to certain steps uh, during the war and we have a lot of private letters uh, which gave a deep insight into his personality He's very um, um, he doesn't give very much on on his um, military um, uh, decisions in these uh, letters but on his personal uh, point of view. And in my opinion, this is also very important uh, to understand how Conrad reacted, especially in this very, very tough situation in September and October 1914, when everything escalated and when everything went uh, wrong, what he planned for years. Um, you can see when uh, you read the letters and also the the notes from the guys who were in um, 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 direct contact with him, the officers who were in contact with him, that he was a very fragile uh, uh, person, that he, in some situations, uh, closed the door of his office for hours or for days. When his son fell at the front, he, he closed the doors for three days, which must be horrible for the whole channel staff in this uh, situation uh, that you don't get answers from your boss uh, to to fail decisions, um, and also what his relationship to his uh, women concerned. You can see that is he's, he, he's a very fragile person, uh, not very. Uh, good in failing um, decisions um, and and who has troubles uh, to accept uh, certain facts in, in which are not in his point of view.
0: Right. Um, so it's probably good then that he's not going to be hurt by the criticism that we're going to talk about for the rest of the interview. He's not around to hear it if he's so fragile. But... He has taken uh, a fair bit of criticism for several reasons, but one of the topics is about how aggressive his approach was, not only in the first weeks of the war, which we'll get into in a bit more, but in the in the time leading up to the war. And I think it was Sonthaus actually called him the architect of the apocalypse. Now, and you you mentioned that he's within this small circle of a few dozen people that decides. So, how much can we weigh that out? How much of the responsibility for the declaration of war does he actually bear, in your opinion?
2: Um, I really do not want to overestimate his influence. That's that is. I think that is the most important thing we have to realize. I think he is a symbol. Uh, even before the war starts and we can see this very good in late 1912 when it comes uh, when the first Balkan war started uh, and when his um, interim uh, chief of staff, Blasius Shemua, was not uh, as aggressive as Conrad was and the the emperor, even the emperor and and also Franz Ferdinand were looking for this card, this war card that they needed. They were looking for the hawk uh, to build up some kind of uh, war schema um, even when they uh, preferred a diplomatic solution of the whole situation, but they needed this card Um, and Conrad was this card. Um, He was willing to be this card, but I think he didn't realize that he was a card. I thought he all the time thought uh, that he can make this war um, against, in a controlled situation, against a small state in a controlled uh, setting. Um, And he didn't get the chance. And when it came to 1914, he had no chance to go back and say, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, All the time I I, I wanted the war, but now I don't want the war, although I know that uh, uh, Serbia is too strong for us, that Russia will enter the war, that Italy hopefully not will enter the war, but I fear they will enter the war, and so on. Uh, And then he said, "Okay, we need to go to war now. We must go to war now. He couldn't go back uh, at 1914. So I think he has uh, a, a, a certain responsibility for the outbreak of war, but the war decision fell um, in Vienna and in Berlin in the, um, in, in the governments uh, and at the courts, uh, at the diplomatic level. But I also uh, want to stress that we also see that there also was in Paris and in Petersburg also a will for war, uh, although the final decision was, uh, um, was, in, um, was felt by uh, Kaiser Franz Josef and, and Wilhelm.
0: Okay. Um, I want to ask you a question now from a listener of ours, from an audience member and a supporter of the channel. Um, And he talks about sort of Conrad's relationship with the army. And he basically says, uh, look, we know that things did not go well for the Austro-Hungarian army, especially in the first first year of the war. And that some of that may be laid at the feet of of, uh, Conrad. But our listener argues that some of that is also... Because of the budget situation leading up to the war, that the army kind of didn't have enough funds to do what it would have wanted to do. So did Conrad realize the extent that his own forces had been weakened by this kind of, they weren't able to conscript everyone they wanted to, they weren't able to get the equipment and so on. Did he have a clear picture of how this might impact uh, the army.
2: I think he had a clear picture and a quite realistic picture uh, of the situation of the army. I think that wasn't the problem. All the time since 1906, he was fighting for more money. He was fighting for more money for the troops, for uh, the marine. Um, he was fighting for the new mortars, uh, for better rifles, uh, and stuff like that. He was all the time fighting for more money and more resources. Also the very, the, the reforms of 1912 and 1913, which raised the number of recruits, uh, they were absolutely in his, um, in his interest. And he was also, um, Formulating the laws and and stuff like that uh, to to come closer uh, to to uh, a better army. Um, he also knew very good how the situation is in Russia, in Serbia, uh, that they uh, win more and more terror uh, towards austria Hungary. That's also the reason why he he uh, was. Um, Um, Was uh, asking for the war uh, stronger and stronger with every day. Um, That that was the the, I think that was uh, a very realistic point of view uh, of his uh, view. He had also a very deep belief in the spirit and in the training of the troops, and also in his officers and and in the NCOs. He was uh, had a really Um, um, a deep, um, um, he thought the army is really good motivated to fight. Um, Although I think what he really underestimated is the social and economic context and and political context uh, of the whole monarchy. He didn't saw that uh, the Habsburg Empire was not ready for an industrial war. Uh, the Habsburg monarchy was no industrial empire. Uh, it had very, in some kind, good uh, industries uh, in Bohemia. Škoda, we know. We had uh, iron industries here in, in, in Styria and stuff like that. But they were not ready for an industrial war for, uh, to, to raise up within months the protection for millions of soldiers. Who who, uh, had to fight? I think that was um, an aspect which he completely underestimated, Uh, and he also uh, underestimated what uh, what happened in the in the wars shortly before nineteen fourteen, and the Russo-Japanese War. Uh, or, or in the Balkan Wars. He didn't realize uh, what what's going on there and they didn't transfer it uh, for their uh, strategies uh, and for their uh, tactical uh, um, papers.
0: Yeah, and I think it, it must be said in all fairness that, of course, he's not the only one who overlooked some of the lessons, yes, of course, of, of course. the Balkan Wars and the Russo-Japanese yes. War. The French in particular were also big believers in... Morale and elan and, you know, momentum and, and the spirit of the offensive and so on and so forth. Um, and that kind of leads in, in a way, to the next question we have, another community question from our own uh, Great War team, actually. If it's the case that uh, Conrad, you know, recognizes some of the limitations of his forces, but still thinks that they're going to be able to perform effectively on the battlefield, which they then don't. Why did he enjoy for such a long time this reputation as a great strategist?
2: I think that's uh, a big mistake. He was never a strategist. He was a tactic. Uh, he came from the tactic uh, perspective of the military. He wrote uh, a couple of um, I heard and uh, hear until today, and in this times, very important works on tactics, Studium to Tactic, uh, published first uh, 1891, and which was published a couple of times, once more in reprints. Um, but he, in my point of view, had a very bad um, ability to think uh, strategically, because when you think in strategic. Matters You have to really estimate uh, the whole political situation, the diplomatic situation, uh, that the big picture you have to view. Conrad had no big pictures, he thought. He has a big pictures and he spoke in his yearly denkschriften towards the Kaiser of how uh, to deal with Greece and how to deal with uh, Turkey and how to deal with Russia and stuff like that. But he really had no clue of the whole situation. And that's one of the biggest problem, I think, in his self-estimation, but also in the uh, estimation of others towards him. And I think the second uh, biggest problem is that he did not um, um, realize uh, what's going on around him. I think he stopped in his military thinking in the late 19th century. He was an expert in the uh, Austro-Prussian War. He was an expert in the French-Prussian War. Uh, There he knew... Uh, every every step the armies did in this situation, um, they had uh, some perspectives. What what was going on at the Russo Japanese War, uh, especially um, what the effect of the machine gun was there, uh, the first trench wars uh, there. Uh, they also had an idea what's going on at the Balkan Wars uh, concerning ethnic cleansing and the whole. Uh, ethnic aspects of this war, the guerrilla aspects of this war, but they didn't translate it to their concepts. And in my opinion, for a general staff, uh, chief of a general staff, which was for this period, for 1906 until 1914, not adopting to these new uh, situations, that's his second uh, biggest uh, problem uh, he has uh, or, or, or that that's the second biggest problem with von Henderson as strategist
0: so in some way Could we say that he was partially successful in getting his message out that he was you know that he did grasp these concepts because there is an echo of that then down through the decades afterwards Uh, i suppose from those who either haven't read your book or remain unconvinced by it
2: Um, yes i think uh, that's true most of the people uh, are really impressed by the details um, of his autobiography, Aus meiner Dienstzeit. And there he repeats and repeats and repeats all the time the same arguments throughout this close to uh, 6,000 pages uh, he writes there. And he quotes very much documents in there, uh, so uh, that's very impressive if you read it, especially in, the, uh, in, the, in these details. Um, and most of them historians just used to, um aus meiner dienstzeit um just few went into uh, his uh, the documents of his estate and had a, had a closer look on 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 the the documents and it's um to be honest it is a his estate is a is in a very complicated situation you don't know how how it was formed uh who put it uh, exactly together is this uh, just conrad is this is also uh gina uh what did they did at the state archives uh with uh, the whole estate it's very difficult to use and until today um and even for my research i didn't get uh insight into the private documents which are still in the family archives uh from famous families in austria also his um family i didn't get uh, um, an insight into his uh records which would be very interesting uh, to have that's a fascinating
0: i mean that means that there's m- more to be told uh about him then as well and i always find it fascinating how you know books come out uh historical arguments are made by historians and so on, but these of course are always shaped by what sources are available and something as simple as a badly organized archival estate can have a big impact on, you know, what historians are able to, to do, and then what they're able to argue. Um, yeah, let's jump into another question about him. Uh, this one is uh, getting into the darker side of things because especially in the early years, but in general in the war, it doesn't get as much press as, uh, I guess, the German war crimes in Belgium. But the Austro-Hungarian army did uh, commit a fair number of uh, crimes, especially in Galicia and in occupied Serbia. Can you tell us a bit about what Konrad's uh, role may have been in in those eventually being carried out by troops essentially under uh, as a part of his army and whether he bears any responsibility for them. And we're talking several tens of
2: thousands of people who were, who were killed here. Uh, yeah. Um, at first, I have to confess, I did never found a smoking gun. I did never found the order where he asked uh, demanded the ultimate shooting of civilians in Galicia this and there, I didn't found it. But I think uh, we don't need it. Uh, And the troops didn't need it, um, this order, this one order uh, in, let's say, uh, in the first days of August or in September, uh, because the whole setting was here. Uh, They had the Dienstbuch uh, J25A, uh, which regulated the Kriegsüberwachungsamt, which regulated the whole situation uh, in the hinterland of the front, uh, which regulated uh, the killing um, and Standrechtsurteile uh, for civilians uh, who were supposed to be spies. And um, they just used uh, these weapons they had at the hand. Uh, the, the general staff just said, okay, uh, we don't trust our own, our own civilians in Galicia and in Bukovina, so uh, treat them as hard as you think you need uh, to treat them, and so tens of thousands of civilians were killed at the spot. Just farmers who put light on in a, in the village to to feed their cows uh, because they thought this may are signs uh, for the Russians, uh, and uh, thousands of people were uh, were brought to internment camps like in Krasnaya Polyana, which is uh, close to. To the city of Graz today, where uh, because of uh, the bad situation, uh, only in the first winter, one, on a, uh, one and a half thousand people died. Additional to this, Conrad was, I think, also responsible for a certain culture uh, within the officer corps, within the general uh, staff, uh, a culture which saw the own citizens as uh, danger, as danger uh, for the realm for the whole empire, uh, which the army has to control and which the army has to fight. Uh, that was the story the Austro-Hungarian army lived since 1848 when the army was the last resort to hold together uh, the monarchy. And um, the only experience combat experience the Austro-Hungarian army had after 1866 were uh, Combats against civilians, fights against civilians. Uh, at the occupation um, um, of Bosnia had the governor. Uh, there were um, workers' um, riots which were fought by the army, not by the police, uh, because the police were much too small in this time in, 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 the, in the empire. So it was some kind of normal uh, for um, the Austro-Hungarian army to fight against their own People and Conrad, as very much others in the whole military scene in in whole Europe, had a very social Darwinistic uh, point of view. Slavs were some kind of uh, for him and uh, they had to be forced uh, to do the right thing and if they can't be, if we can't do it uh, by the Knute uh, uh, we have to do it by our weapons um, and, and kill that guys. That was the thinking uh, of most of the generals the military generals. The the aristocratic uh, officers, um, the the whole um, um, people around uh, the empire were shocked when they heard what's going on in Galicia and the urge to stop it very fast. Uh, It took some time uh, to to stop the riots, what are are going on in Galicia. And to be honest, I think uh, it only was stopped because the Russians went so fast into Galicia and, and the and the Austro-Hungarian troops had to flee uh, out of the scene. Uh, so it's you can't uh, say he's only uh, the one who is uh, who who, uh, who holds a smoke, smoking gun in the hand. We have to see the whole picture, I think.
0: Okay. All right. Um, now, perhaps for, for our last question, I want to talk about, um, or I want you to talk about, his sort of legacy, I guess, the, the the memory in a way. After the war and then after his death even, there were some other figures who tried to make use of of his status and, and of his reputation and so on. Who is trying to use his memory and what are they trying to achieve?
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the funny thing is uh, that he would not have been very happy uh, with um, the situations and the guys who instrumentalized him after his uh, death. Um, Even his funeral uh, became a political demonstration of the Christian Democrats, uh, the Christian socialists um, around Seipel uh, to make a political statement within the Red Vienna. Uh, so they were one of the first who instrumentalized uh, him. The so-called Ständerstaat, the Austrofascist regime, um, uh, used him uh, to uphold the, the story of the old, strong Austria, which had a general there who fought brave for years uh, against the enemies from the in and from the outside. And they also used his opposition towards the Prussians. Uh, he had, um, um, out of his tradition of the uh, Austro-military um, tradition, a very anti-Prussian uh, uh, point of view, and they used that. And that must have been uh, for um, uh, him a very uh, strange situation because he was an atheist, uh, strict atheist, although raised in a Catholic um, household. Um, and until the end of his days he never accepted this new Austria uh, which was uh, raising since 1918 Uh, and I think he also wouldn't also have uh, very happy uh, with the Stendestadt which was built up 1934. This was the first group uh, who who were instrumentalizing him. the second group uh, are the monarchists he never was a monarchist. Uh, he uh, favored a state with a strong leading figure. And uh, in, in his point of view, until the death of uh, uh, Kaiser Franz Josef, uh, the emperor was it, uh, Franz Joseph was it. Karl wasn't it. And he was um, all the time uh, in, a, in a conflict with Karl, even before uh, Karl became emperor he were, he was looking for a strong state and so um the monarchists wouldn't have been his 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 um counterparts uh, some, somewhere uh, so this is the second group who instrumentalized him the third groups are the german nationalists um, later also the uh, the nazis um we have I, I couldn't find until today a clear position from Conrad towards Hitler. Uh, he wasn't very happy with this guy. Uh, he definitely was no um political hero for Conrad von Hutzendorf because he was a, a Austrian refugee who fought in the in the, in, in, in a foreign army, first, <laughs> second. Um, he didn't like uh, this nationalismus as he called it, uh, this, this loud shouting nat- uh, nationalism. Uh, um, uh, he exemplified it uh, with Schönerer, one of the most important um, German nationalistic uh, figures in the Habsburg empire. He wasn't a big fan of him, although in the late uh, years, he became more and more German nationalistic, Conrad, became more and more generalistic. Um, I think I I think he wouldn't uh, been very happy with this instrumentalization. But the most interesting instrumentalization uh, was started after nineteen forty-five by the Austrian Army by itself. Uh Aha. they, they really honored him, him in a couple of times. Uh, they, they named the in- uh, Innsbruck Barracks after him. Uh, they made, uh, especially around the fifties anniversary of his death, uh, 1975, exhibitions and books uh, on him and stuff like that. Uh, here he was built up as a hero uh, picture, and it uh, took a couple of time to... Shift this picture. Uh, it took until a couple of years ago, but I hear now that uh, there that there's there's change now in these um, perspectives. Change
0: often comes slowly in Austria. Let's uh, let's put it that way. Okay, so with that, uh, we'll bring our conversation to an end for this uh, episode of the podcast. Before we go. I want to make sure that for those of our listeners out there who read German and who are interested in getting their hands on uh, the book Des Kaiser's Falke, where can they best uh, do that? Where is it available to be ordered?
2: Uh, it's, um, it's sold uh, simply on, on in every bookshop, and you can order it also online. Uh, the second edition um, for all who uh, only read English. I give in a paper uh, which was published in the Contemporary Austrian Studies in volume 23, Um, which was published in New Orleans, and there I give in in one paper a small insight into the responsibilities um, around 1914 and the war crimes 1914. So this I can recommend for all English uh, readers uh, and for the German readers, they can order the book online or in, in in their bookstore around the corner.
0: Sounds good. We of course encourage uh, all of you folks out there to support your local bookstores. Uh, Dr. Dornick, it was a pleasure. I'm glad that uh, we had the chance to connect. I learned a lot uh, from the book and from this uh, chat as well, so I very much appreciate it. Thank you for coming on.
2: Thank you for inviting me. It was a great pleasure to speak with you and um, it also was for me uh, interesting uh, hearing your questions. Because the questions you raise are completely different. Uh, uh, an interview on Kon von in the 19, 1990s um, would have been raised. Thank you very much. That's okay. the beauty of it. All right, folks, we'll leave it at that. Thanks again. Okay. Bye-bye.